This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Safia El-Hillo came into the spotlight in youth poetry slams in Washington, D.C., where she grew up. She's the child of Sudanese immigrants. She published her first poetry collection in 2017, and she wrote a novel in verse called Home is Not a Country. El-Hillo's new collection is called Girls That Never Die. When I first read Safia's poetry, I was really struck by just how raw it is. Dana Goodyear is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a poet herself. She's obviously someone who's really deeply interested in language and nuance and subtlety, but there's something so candid and embodied about the work that really was what grabbed me. Most of Safia's work up to this point has really focused on questions of identity, how race, culture, religion, country of origin define who you are. And in this book, she's doing all of that, but she's also made it incredibly personal, and that feels really different. When we spoke, I asked her to read a poem from the new collection. The poem's called, On Eid We Slaughter Lambs, and I Know Intimately the Color. Here's an excerpt. I ride an Uber spilling the last of the day's ginger light. Driver handsome enough to pull listening sounds as he chats. Our talk is casual at its center, but at the edges I taste an old brittleness, memory of something burnt. He circles his mouth to an electronic cigarette, and its vapor braids into the earth in vinegar smell of sweat. You are Muslim, he tells me. Not a question. And I nod smile at his smoke-dark eyes in the mirror. I count the prayer beads strung in a necklace from his rear view. Ninety-nine and perfect, glossy and unworn. Mine are sandalwood and leave their perfume when cabling through my fingers. Drink, smoke, he demands an inventory of my wickedness and the way men of my faith think me immediately theirs, daughter and sister and wife, always attest and never asking my name.
Before this book, I think I had very clear rules for myself about what I was and was not allowed to write poetry about. Um, And my body was one of the things that I was not allowed to write poetry about because I also didn't ever want to do anything that would call attention to my body or make anyone want to look at it or perceive it or pay attention to it. Um, my, my first book is called the January children and it came out in 2017. And, um, my body is not really in that book. It is kind of thinking primarily about language and identity and place. And, and still, even though I wrote a book that followed all my rules about what I was and was not allowed to write poetry about, I, um, after that book came out, I was having a pretty rough time on the internet with, and it would often be men in my inbox, um, a lot of whom share some of my intersections. And they were just so mad at me. And I was like, I didn't do anything. Basically, you were being told that you weren't being modest because you had published poems? Or what was the specific? It wasn't even about the poems. I think it's just that I was like existing on the internet, you know, Um, just like a lot of name calling and slut shaming and things like that. Meanwhile, here I was thinking that I was like, winning the modesty game, you know? I was very particular about, like, what kinds of clothes I could be photographed in and um, the kinds of things I could I would discuss in public. And I think it really, I had to sit down and really dismantle this idea that if I was, whatever, polite enough, respectful enough, modest enough, quiet enough, silent enough, that nobody would ever want to do me harm. And when I started... And I, I started to write some poems around that time just because that's, you know, one of the main ways I process a feeling. And I immediately felt those poems starting to, like, nudge up against my rules. Um, my body was very much in those poems. Um, I also don't know that I'd ever written a particularly angry poem before that, or at least I'd never sat down to write primarily from a place of anger. Yeah, you've characterized it in the acknowledgments to the book, you characterize it as a breaking of silence, not just for you, but also for other women in your circle and in your family. And there are a number of poems that either directly or indirectly talk about cutting. Can you explain for readers who might not be familiar what that practice is? Yeah, so uh, cutting refers to FGM, which is female genital mutilation. It's a process whereby a child's clitoris and sometimes other parts of the genitals are removed um, in an effort to discourage promiscuity later on in life. And this was something that you wanted to address. It seems like a really direct way of centering a female body in the poems, but also a way of questioning a practice that is part of your family's heritage. Yeah, it's, um, so this is, something that has been on my mind probably since I was a child. You know, I grew up knowing that FGM was a common practice 
in Sudan and in a lot of surrounding countries. Um, and there would often be an allusion to the practice having happened in my family and in my own lineage. And just the like casual speculation also in my family about who had an, or had not been cut and in what style and to what extent um, was, you know, it was spoken of pretty quietly and usually in like specifically cloistered femme spaces, but still very casually. There was never like an announcement of it or even any real processing. It's just, you know, this person was cut. This person was not. At this point, it fell out of fashion. And so recent generations, it's not as prevalent. Um, And I think, I mean, obviously it just really stayed with me. And, um, but I haven't really dedicated a lot of time and space in my poems to it before that, because that very much felt within the realm of these are things we do not talk about. This is family business. This is not to be talked about outside of the home in any way. Um, But I really just cannot be contributing to a culture of silence anymore. And so I figure the least I can do is keep my side of the street clean. Girls that never die. Perhaps a cow, some gold for a girl, carried kicking from her father's house, from her father's name, and slung over a shoulder, and passed to another, whose belonging will name her, will give her form. Girl like water, shapeless without the bull. Girl, perhaps cut, perhaps in the pharaonic way, sent off to be split. Girl as paintbrush, sent off to stain a sheet, perhaps by cover of night. Perhaps the husband is old and the girl a child, legs clamped tight as if by stitching. Perhaps his brothers, perhaps his cousins, men as ropes, as chains, brought in to peel the girl like young fruit, the pith still bitter, still clinging to the rind. Poet Safia El Hilo. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. 
Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. I want to switch gears a bit and talk about language. So you include a lot of Arabic words and phrases in your poetry, but you've also said elsewhere that that language is complicated for you. Can you talk about how you feel about Arabic and why you sometimes include it in your poems, but don't fully embrace the language? Um, so the writer, Alamin Abdul Mahmoud, just released a memoir a few months ago called Son of Elsewhere. And um, I think it's maybe the first English language memoir by a Sudanese person I've ever read. And he talks in that book about how his Arabic is kind of frozen at age 12 because that's the age at which he left Sudan and immigrated to Canada. So I am also deeply a child in Arabic. I actually don't have, I don't even think it's a question of fluency or not fluency in that like, I get how the grammar works. You know, I can conjugate a verb, but there's just a fundamental lack of adult vocabulary in my Arabic. Um, so there's, there are just a lot of words that I don't know, a lot of nuance that I can't express. Um, I know how to like ask how you're doing and how your family's doing and how is your health and thank God a bunch of times and praise the food and, you know, make small talk, talk about the weather, things like that. So if I'm like, if we're having lunch, my Arabic is great, but for the, just the vocabulary and the range that I need to access to write poetry in order to say exactly, exactly what I mean. I don't have access to that in Arabic because I just, I don't have the vocabulary for it. There is a poem I would love to have you read that is about that. Cause I was thinking when you were saying, I can ask about the weather and I'm a really good lunch date in Arabic. And I was like, but you can also swear. So will you, <laughs> will you read profanity for us? Yes. Um, so this poem actually, funnily enough, is about how I can't really swear in Arabic. Um, all my swears are kind of soft and they're like animal words and stuff. I don't know any like good, proper swears in Arabic. Profanity. One. I know 99 names from my God and none from my redacted. A failing not of my deity, but of my Arabic. Not the language itself, rather the overeager mosaic I hoard, I steal. I borrow from pop songs and mine from childhood fluency. I guard my few swear words like tinkling silver anklets, spare and precious, and never nearly enough to muster a proper Arabic anger. 
proper Arabic vulgarity, only a passing spar, always using the names of animals. I am not polite. I am only inarticulate, overproud of my little arsenal. A stranger blows a wet tobacco kiss through the window of my taxi, and I deploy my meager weapons, dog, pig, donkey, and finally, my crown jewel. I pass my tongue across my teeth, crane my neck about the window, and call, your mother's redacted. Two. Now I know the worst profanity, what men use when they need to curse one another, to cut, word I only know as a swear, your mother's, your sister's, mine. In Arabic, the word hisses, traps the tongue between the teeth, spits, words so similar to an English kiss, turned to venom by inflection, to rot in the mouth, sight of shame, birthplace of the profane, But what word can I use to call my own? How, without disgrace, can I name my innocent parts, my wounds? I am saying, if asked in Arabic, I could not tell you where I open. Safia, thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. poet Safia El Hillo. Her new collection is called Girls That Never Die. She spoke with Dana Goodyear, a longtime staff writer at The New Yorker. I'm David Remnick, and this is The New Yorker Radio Hour. Next week, with the World Cup about to begin, I'll talk with the investigative journalist Heidi Blake, who's recently joined The New Yorker staff. She co-wrote a remarkable book called The Ugly Game. It's a deep look at how Qatar came to host the World Cup this year and all the corruption surrounding it. I hope you'll join us. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Emily Botin, Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen and Putubwele. Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, Jenny Lawton, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Meher Bhatia and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. 